everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really interesting chat for you today with New York Times columnist Pamela Paul, who had a very interesting column this week about the movie Barbie. We will get to that chat with Pamela in just a second. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let me tell you a little bit about Pamela Paul. She's an opinion columnist for the New York Times. For nine years, she was the editor of the New York Times Book Review and oversaw all books coverage at the New York Times. She was also the longtime host of the weekly book review podcast, She's the author and editor of eight books, including The Stardom Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, Pornified, and Parenting, Inc., and the picture book, Rectangle Time. She's a former contributor to Time and former correspondent for The Economist, and has been a columnist for the style section of The Times, Worth Magazine, and The Economist. Pamela, welcome into the back room. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a column out in the New York Times, which is titled, Barbie is Bad. There, I've said it. And just the title alone kind of indicates that you know you're kind of sticking your toes into some unchartered territory this year. Certainly taking a little bit of a risky, bold move by saying it. I mean, I knew what I was getting into. It's funny because I usually try to have a headline before I write uh, my weekly column because that helps me. It sort of coalesces the core idea for me, the argument I'm trying to make. And this one came out that way. Um, and I thought, uh, well, surely I'll revisit this headline as I get along in the piece. But by the time I was done, I thought, you know what, this is just, this kind of says it all. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's a hard thing when your critical opinion is so against the tide. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first started out as a journalist for The Economist in the 90s, um, I wrote about film. And it was particularly frightening back then because you really didn't know what anyone else thought. And that's the way it should be, right, in an ideal world. You're not seeing early online, you know, Rotten Tomatoes or people tweeting out a line, or you don't even see the trade reviews because they weren't online back then. So you really have no idea what the critical consensus is going to be or what the arguments are going to be. And when you come out there with your opinion, you're kind of you know, really waiting to see, like, is your is your point of view totally different uh, from everyone else's? And obviously now I no longer write as a film critic, but I went into Barbie. I have to admit, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't one of those people that arrived dressed in pink. I didn't play with a Barbie when I was a child, but I was open to it. I was, I, I went in with an open, if skeptical uh, mind. Um, and which just probably describes my, the way I approach most things. And I was just bored. I was so bored. And that was, I mean, that to me is the kind of cardinal sin of, mil of filmmaking. Um, or, you know, there's some films where they are trying to get you to be bored in order to suggest something um, about, you know, that's that central to the film's idea, right? Where if you're watching a film um, that takes place on uh, in a monastery in the 8th century or on a farm, you know, you expect that to be part of the message. But this wasn't trying to be bored um, or be boring. So um, I, I, I felt from the get-go, like, 
I was really out of line. And I've, I've had that fear feeling before when I've been, I remember, I think, God, when did this come out? About year 2000, the film Chocolat came out and everyone seemed to love it. I was sitting in the audience and I, I wasn't an early screening. It was just a regular, you know, opening weekend showing. And the, the film had so many things going for it. It had, you know, Juliette Binoche. It was directed by Lasse Hallström. Um, it took place in an adorable um, French village, which is, you know, a, a place I enjoy being. And I was so prepped to like it. And not only did I despise every minute of it, but my reaction was in such, it was, there was such dissonance between my reaction and everyone around me that I just felt like alienated from my fellow man. I thought like, is it me? Like, am I on the same planet as these people? And that's kind of how I felt with Barbie. Hmm. That's, it's interesting because I went to see it mainly because it was such a phenomenon and Maddie and Jen, uh, my co-producers, they loved it. And I just thought I, it's something I need to do. But I kind of agree with you in the sense that in the first 10, maybe even 15 minutes, I was also bored. I mean, I've raised three daughters. I have two granddaughters now. I, I mean, I... So you don't hate women? I don't, <laughs> don't hate women. No, I actually love women. I have a lot of respect for women, especially strong women. And I didn't have any like particular hankering to go see the film. I went more because it was a cultural phenomenon and I just wanted to be able to in an educated way talk about it when I talked about it with people rather than just you know from a distance say I didn't see it but I'm sure it was blah 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 and the other thing too when I sat down the guy sitting next to me was with his wife and and daughter he coughed nonstop. okay so that was a little distracting and then the wife didn't stop talking for two seconds like literally almost throughout the movie but the, oh my god the, a proper and a talker <laughs> did you have a temper too and the kid was like mommy so it was like all three of them were so annoying and the place was packed and so i couldn't switch seats but i have to say it did start to build for me so I, I just felt that there was something there that was maybe beyond my initial ability to get involved in the film. And those are the things I want to talk to you about. In your column, you say, quote, Can I say that despite winsome leads and likable elements, it didn't cohere or accomplish anything interesting without being written off as A, mean, B, old, C, hateful, or D, humorless? So we get that you found it. You know, it was boring. You feel that it didn't accomplish anything interesting. And then you also said, quote, disliking Barbie meant either dismissing the power of the patriarchy or dismissing modern feminism. You were either anti-feminist or too feminist or just not the right kind. Few dared reign on Barbie's hot pink parade. So, yes, if you do criticize Barbie, I think you do get thrown into some buckets, the four that you mentioned, one or more of them. And yes, I've heard people who criticize the film be called anti-feminist, etc. But were you just watching it purely for its cinematic value without getting mired in any of the other trappings that a lot of people got caught up in and obviously that you spoke about in your column? Well, it was hard not to get mired in the politics because mm -hmm. the film approached politics with a kind of, you know... Um, I don't know, uh, velvet covered sledgehammer, you know, it was extremely, um, it was dogmatic, but it was dogmatic in a way that was, um, you know, trying to, uh, eat its cake and have it too, you know? So it was, it was trying to be a little bit all things to all people, although 
maybe not to people on the far right um, who hated it for you know every single political reason that you would expect. And and so that was another thing that was interesting about the reaction to the film is that I didn't even agree with the people who hated it. Um, I felt like they hated it for the wrong reasons. One of the most rewarding things about um, writing this column has been hearing from people who hated it um, the way that I hated it, which, um, you know, it's always fine, good finding people who are um, anti-fans in the same way that you are. Kind of, um, but I tend to be a fairly easy um, movie enjoyer. Like I, I will often leave a theater and say to my kids or whoever I'm with, you know, that wasn't a good movie, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm not a snob in that sense. I really, I love a good action movie. I, I like all genre. Um, and uh, I found, however, that the few things that there were to enjoy, um, that the film almost got in the way of that. It's like Barbie, um, Margot Robbie is extremely attractive. She's a fantastic actress. Um, you could look at her all day and 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 not get bored. And yet, <laughs> and yet, you know, I I I just did. Um, I didn't. I love America Ferrera. Um, I thought her um, her big speech um, sounded like it had been written in 1998 by you know a sophomore majoring in women's studies. Like it just didn't feel like it. Not only felt like it wasn't breaking any new ground, but I felt like the ground it was trotting over was sort of so well matted and and done that it bored me it bored me I, so i was not galvanized yes in a way america for our speech might have seen dated but i think the value of it was that it was now being said in such a, a mo monumental platform that was going to spread that message so big, so quickly, so wide in a way that it never could have been spread and wasn't spread in 1998. So yeah, old message, but now we had an opportunity to hear it. The world had an opportunity to hear it. So I, I mean, it's, and that was the thing for me is that once I, I got over my boredom and I started to really get into the film, once you were anesthetized by boredom, you could then sort of... I mean, I, I started to see the importance of the film, and it wasn't an all-or-nothing kind of thing. It was, you know, the movie, from a cinematic standpoint, I felt was visually very appealing. The acting was terrific. It, I, I thought it was a, a really well-made movie, but yet it also did have an incredible message. So I think I, I sort of tapped into all of that all at once, like maybe 15, 20 minutes in. But I'm... I'm curious to know, you mentioned there were things you liked about the film, and you mentioned one or two in particular, Margot Robbie, but what were the main things that you liked? Because we know you, you didn't like the film, but what are the things you liked? You're really going to force me into saying this. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, again, the presence of America Ferrer in anything is just, it, it's so smart to cast her. It's so smart uh, to have her on. It's such a pleasure. She's such a pleasure to watch. Um, that she was probably the best thing in the film. Um, but again, for me, despite the speech, which I felt like could have been mm -hmm. much better, but this was definitely a palatable, easy to swallow in multiple cultures around the world kind of message. Um, so you're correct there. But um, I thought that the costumes uh, were well done. I liked some of the, I liked some of the early world building of um, the, you know, kind of Barbie world. Um, but then I felt like 
she didn't obey the rules of her own world building. I felt like um, as unreal as the Barbie land was, mm -hmm. um, the real world was equally unreal. Um, you know, the, it, it, it was just, again, a kind of weird, um, not 2023 version of the actual world. Um, so let me struggle to find things I liked. Um, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> okay. I actually, that's a little further than I thought you'd go. Um, okay. Well, I mean, when I watch something terrible, it's like sitting next to someone that you find dull at a dinner party and you make it your mission. Like not everyone isn't boring. This person has something really interesting about them. And it might be that they collect, you know, um, I don't know, plastic turtles. Like there's just, there's something hidden and it's your job as a conversationalist to bring that out in them. Um, so usually even if I'm watching a bad movie, I really focus on something as, you know, narrow as someone's achievement of a, you know, particular British accent, mm -hmm. um, or even like someone really struggling and doing a terrible accent, accent. And I find that enjoyable. Um, so yeah. You mentioned people have reached out to you. I would imagine you probably got, uh, all kinds of people saying great and people yeah. who were, you know, if this was the middle ages, probably would want to get some stones, but what has been the pushback like overall? You know, the pushback has been extremely mild. I'm not unfamiliar with pushback. Every mm -hmm. journalist is, especially at the Times, um, but, and also opinion columnists, because we're, you know, in our very job is to put out an opinion every week that people, if you're saying anything interesting or necessarily should be disagreeing with as much as they're agreeing. Mm -hmm. But I think that the people who loved Barbie have felt really validated for a year. So, you know, they, they didn't throw stones so much as the people who have felt kind of silenced mm -hmm. in their um, in their loathing have come out of the closet. And so that's been really interesting. Um, even, you know, some people in Hollywood have uh, reached out to me. And I think that's, uh, you know, kind of fascinating because, um, you know, they're I'm sure, you know, it's it's sacrilegious mm -hmm. anything terrible about it unless you tried out for part and didn't get it or something um so uh no it's it's mostly been very positive mm -hmm. i mean i read the comments um uh on the website and there were definitely lots of people who um you know who defended it and um one of the things you know that is is always funny about the defense is that sometimes you know they really make the argument because they were like you're humorless and <laughs> like yeah I have said I would be accused of being humorless, and here you are validating my opinion inadvertently. Mm -hmm. You made an interesting analogy in your column to Toy Story. Yeah. Because on the one hand, I was going to say, okay, here's this inanimate. Don't tell me you don't like Toy Story. I love Toy Story. Okay. All right. Uh, and hopefully by the end of this interview, you'll have a friend in me. Okay. okay, I did that. I actually did that. Did I do that? <laughs> yeah, that's you me. did. You that channeled the tent. That's me. Can't help it. Um, so you made this analogy to Toy Story. Mm -hmm. and, and on the one hand, it's like, okay, Barbie, inanimate object. She's a toy, right? Uh, throughout history, probably a pretty vacuous one, right? Doesn't necessarily project the kind of image that we as parents, when our kids play with them, you know, you, you can't help it. Like every kid has Barbies and your daughter wants one and you got to have them, but you're not really happy about it, you know? Um, but so she was there... an air hostess and a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, well, over the years, sure. But um, yeah. it is 
an inanimate object. She's never had a voice. She's never had opinions. So on the one hand, you could say they're not real. So there is an inherent challenge in taking something like that and trying to make a movie about it. But to your point about the analogy to Toy Story, they did a very good job making those characters very real and very lovable. But my question to you is, couldn't this have just been a different kind of take where Greta Gerwig wanted those characters to still be a bit inanimate and robotic and true to what they are in this culture rather than inject personalities per se? Yes, um, it is possible. And um, I mean, this is something, this is a subject I'm really fascinated uh, by because I began um, my career at the Times as an editor and um, specifically as an editor for children's books coverage at the Book Review and have written picture books. And one of the great things that children's literature does is animate toys all the time, right? Every, mm -hmm. if you think back to all of the picture books that you grew up loving, right? Not all the protagonists or characters or worlds are human. Um, they are, you know, rabbits and raccoons mm -hmm. and Richard Scarry. They are teddy bears. Um, they are dolls. And those, um, those playthings are alive and real. And sometimes, you know, they're, they are um, fully um, in, invested and viewed with um, real human qualities. And sometimes they occupy, as you suggest, this kind of netherworld, this um, possible uh, in-between space mm -hmm. where they are sometimes toys and they are sometimes real or they, are, they have some qualities that are real or not. So I do think that it can be done. Um, but I think that, first of all, there were humans in this uh, movie, in addition to Barbie, um, and the humans didn't seem quite human or real. And again, you know, it's... Well, that's I, what I, I, that's I, what I meant. Of, the, yeah. the, I yeah. was including the actors in that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the toughest things to pull off is the soft satire. Like, if you're doing satire, you've kind of got to go all out or all in mm -hmm. um, in order to pull it off. And soft satire is kind of neither fish nor fowl, right? It, it's like very broad-based comedy um, or broad humor. Uh, I just don't think that it was sharp enough to... The characters weren't sharp enough to come off as deliberate caricature. Um, and they weren't real enough to come off as not caricature. Mm. And just to sort of play devil's advocate, I don't know what was in Greta Gerwig's head, but do you think because the film is so much about the patriarchy, which can seem so, uh, in terms of how it operates without emotion, without compassion, without empathy, do you think there was anything intentional in terms of making the characters seem that way so that on some level it was still very clear that these are just not <clears throat> normal, everyday humans you know we're not going to see ryan gosling like we saw him in the notebook we're going to see ryan gosling as just some robotic dude who just spits out misogynistic sexist crap and maybe that was the point of it you know like maybe the point was to not make these characters so real yeah um i guess i mean you're almost saying like it was equal opportunity, misandry, and misogyny. You know, it was sort of not real men, not real women um, equally. And in that sense, 
or maybe you weren't saying that, but that's what I'm hearing. But no, that's what it felt I, like I just think it's, it's like such it felt a... like the, neither the men or the women were believable. And I guess I don't generally think of the world in terms of the patriarchy, I think, or I should say, I don't think of contemporary 2023 United States culture in terms of the patriarchy. I think that to me is a little simplistic a way to look at how, you know, there's certainly elements that are misogynistic in the culture, but I don't think of it as in, 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 in that kind of black and white way. Mm. Well, the movie was just a phenomenon. So sometimes, like, I look at it and go, why? Why was it a phenomenon? I, I thought it was a great film on some levels. I, for me, it wasn't, you know, Godfather, but there was a bunch of women here. They'd say, "Well, of course you're going to say the Godfather because that's what dudes always say." So it's like, this I is like sort the of the Godfather. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I'm I'm generalizing. I'm generalizing. There's a comedian uh, that I saw recently who said something like, you know, uh, a female comedian who said that uh, she just hates when guys start teaching her lines from the Godfather because it's so predictable. But yeah, I mean, um, there's a great bit in the White Lotus about that in the season two. Yeah. So the movie also now is getting back into the culture again because of the big Oscar snub. Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig as director and uh, Margot as, as the best actress. And um, you write a few things which I found really interesting, one of which is, quote, every time a woman fails to win an accolade doesn't mean failure for womanhood. Surely women aren't so pitiable as to need a participation certificate every time we try. I agree with that statement on face value. But I, it's... The controversy for me with the snub is that it's not just a film, okay? It's a film that grossed $1.4 It moved the needle on the GDP. It almost single-handedly revived the movie industry. It had major and has major cultural impact. It thrilled generations of women. It sent an incredibly powerful message to young girls in an age dominated by the patriarchy and Me Too movement. But in your column, you wrote, quote, but they are not the same as directing a good film. But I want to add to what I just said by saying yes, but it was and is a good film to a lot of people because it was also nominated for a Best Picture. So given the fact that it's, it did I, get nominated for Best Picture and yeah. all those other things, I, I just can't fathom how Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated as Best Director. Like what else does a movie have to do? Uh, what I would say is that it shouldn't have been nominated as Best Picture. I just don't think it was a good film. I think it was, you know, some of the things you said I agree with. It obviously did a huge amount of box office. It was a very successful uh, marketing and promotional uh, bit of business. Absolutely. Um, I, I wish that it hadn't had so much influence over the culture because I don't think that the depiction of men and women in it was either realistic or, or particularly helpful or relevant in 2023. Um, but again, you know, I, I, I absolutely am excited that it brought people out into the theater. I think seeing movies in uh, an actual movie theater is a fantastic, um, fantastic thing. Um, and I wish the exhibition industry all the best in reviving itself. Um, uh, so that I think all was great. I don't think it should have been nominated for Best Picture. I don't think um, that uh, Greta Gerwig uh, did a good job in directing it. And if anything, I think she clearly had a vision. I think it was a convoluted vision, um, but she had a vision. Um, she tried. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that like she just, you know, uh, and I think the, the best success, the best success that she did, that she she had, I think, with regard to this film 
is that it could have been a total disaster, right? Because there was just nothing, in my view, promising about a movie about a Barbie doll. And yet she made something that people um, clearly, uh, genuinely, or maybe just got caught up in the enthusiasm, uh, responded to. And that is successful. But, um, you know, the Transformers movie, I think, did really well, too. It's also about a toy. And I don't think it was nominated for Best Picture. Um, you know, there are tons of movies that that do really well at the box office, but they're not Best Picture. So to me, the larger scandal was that it was named Best Picture. And in that sense, I think it was kind of a cop out on the part of the um, the Academy because, uh, you know, they, again, you know, wanted like diss on this movie that did so well. Um, but I was really pleased that they didn't uh, nominate her for uh, Best Direction. In fact, if I think about someone who was seriously and egregiously overlooked in terms of Best Direction, in my view, that's Alexander Payne, who did make um, a fantastic movie with the holdovers. And um, and so much of that film was really about the direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, extraordinary direction. Um, he had a vision. It was a great vision. He carried out on it. It was so precise. The world was perfect. I, I, I thought that was a fantastic film. And the fact that he wasn't nominated to me feels like the oversight, the snub that people should be getting worked up over, not um, Greta Gerwig mm. on Barbie. Yeah, and that's a valid point. And I, I probably should have said at the start of this conversation that I, I enter the conversation a, l- a little biased. I was married to a filmmaker, Adrian Shelley, who uh, yes, of course. left this And earth. great actress yes, as well. Yes, and, and a great actress. And uh, I also run a foundation which supports women filmmakers, and uh, we've given out over 100 production grants since 2007, including Chloe Zhao in 2012 when she was still making short films. Um, so in your column, you mentioned that a woman director, uh, Justine Trieg, did get nominated for Best Director for Anatomy of a Fall. And as someone who has worked very closely in the w- women filmmaker space for a lot of years now, I can't help but think, like, is there just room for one woman every year? Is that it? Like, you know, if there's going to be five films, women get one. Like, there's not room for two or three or four. Why can't women dominate that category just like men do? Are, they, are the films that women make, are they in, that much inferior to the films men make that that's the only in that they get in that category? Well... I don't work on the production side of, of Hollywood or the creation side, so I don't know, you know, all the factors that go into the decisions of what gets greenlit and what doesn't. I will say that um, three of the best picture nominees were by uh, directed by women, and so there is, uh, and that's unprecedented, so that was certainly um, a, a move in that direction. I guess, um, personally, and here I wade into dangerous waters, but I am not... Um, I am not hugely um, obsessed with uh, representation at the very, very top. I think sometimes thinking in those terms um, skews our perception of progress um, because very few people are at the very top of the world, right? In terms of whether the arena is Hollywood or Fortune 500 companies um, or, you know, uh, editors of, of news organizations, um, there, there are very few of those positions. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, uh, it, it is true that there is a lower representation there, but I think that the world that matters more for more women is all the points in between. It's being, um, you know, the line manager in a factory, it's being 
senior management in a uh, mm-hmm. you know financial sure. services company. And I think sometimes you know if we focus too much on on those numbers, we don't think about the kind of um, issues uh, that that affect just more people. Um, and uh, so uh, that's all I'll say about that dangerous <laughs> territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm sure that there are plenty of great, um, films conceived of, uh, by women. I was just reading, um, about, um, a TV project, um, that, uh, Sofia Coppola was working on for Apple, uh, plus, uh, this is TV, obviously streaming, um, but not, uh, that, that, that got, you know, called off at the last minute and it was going to be a 10 part series development of Edith Wharton's custom of the country. Um, starring uh, Florence Pugh, and uh, they pulled the plug after two years. So again, I don't know what goes into all that decision-making. Um, I do think that uh, there are lots of projects um, by women, um, by Black filmmakers, by you know people from all different backgrounds that, you know, I don't know if I were the person giving the, you know, in charge, maybe I would have a, a greenlit. But I often, I tend to think that the best um the best of the best rises on its own. Um, one of my previous roles um, at the Times was the editor of the book review. And um, prior to my coming to the book review, the uh, I wasn't the first woman to edit the book review. I was the second. But um, one of the things people said uh, that I had fixed, and if you looked at the raw numbers, they were, I guess, correct, was that we had um, parity um, under my editorship um, in terms of the number of books by women that were reviewed and the number of reviewers who were women. And people said, well, how did you do that? What did you do? And my honest answer, um, and it is just true, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I made no deliberate effort. Um, I just, and I worked with a team, um, and my team was composed of, of men and women, and, and some of those people, you know, I hired um, some were already there, but we just chose the books that we thought were the best. And it just turned out um, that half of them were by women, um, a little more than half, and that um, we also chose the reviewers we thought would be most interesting. And it turned out that more than half uh, were also by women um, and were also you know, written by women, those reviewers. And, uh, and there was no effort uh, made to increase it. It just happened um, because the that was what we saw was the the best quality. So I, I do, you know, in my own experience running something, um, we achieved that kind of parity um, just on the merit, mm. which is, I I think, you know, the way it it should be, and it should be it should be both. Yeah, it should be, and I guess you know, again, to play devil's advocate, there'd be a lot of people that would argue that it's just not, and you know, it's like the old song. Oh, from it's ha- not from <laughs> Hamilton, like just you know, women yeah. find it hard just to get in a room. You know, they can't get in the room, and then when right. they're in the room, then they're just viewed in a different way, and it's like, yeah, you cite progress. Yeah, three of the films that were best picture were directed by women. But the women didn't get the best director nomination. You know, how yeah. many men have we seen, you know, the big directors, the Spielbergs, the Clint Eastwoods, the Tarantinos, et cetera, Scorsese, when their films are nominated as best pictures, it's almost often going to go with a best director nomination. So, I mean, what do you say to the people who, and I, I've always been one, who can't really understand the disconnect between best picture and best director, that, that like how they can seemingly be so mutually exclusive sometimes? 
Um, well, let me, I'm going to, I want to answer that question. The last thing I just want to say to follow up on the, the previous one is that clearly I don't work in Hollywood. I'm not mm -hmm. a decider there. I've never been a decider there. I don't know what factors go into their decisions. So I can only speak um, in terms of direct experience of mm -hmm. what I you know, have had in, in my own uh, world within journalism and, and literary journalism specifically. Um, I think, and again, my understanding of this is as an outsider and appreciator of film and not as a participant. I'm not in the Academy, so I don't, I'm not a voter. I don't know. Um, but that best picture is um, obviously the producers who accept it. So it has to do with the fact of the conception of the entire project and the, the achievement of the project of the product as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and so everything goes into that, the cinematography, the hiring of the cinematographer, the hiring of the director. So it's not just, you know, and again, we all know that Hollywood projects come into fruition through various ways. They can start with an actor, they can start with a director, they can start with a producer, et cetera. And, and it's sort of built, cobbled together bit by bit through various ways. But I think that the film is to um, honor the fact that all of those elements came together to create this particular film and that in its entirety, um, that it is deserving of achievement and direction is really about the skill of the director. Mm -hmm. So it's about vision and the execution that the director had in terms of, you know, um, thinking about how the story should come together, um, helping bring this screenplay um, to life making decisions about you know cameras and angles and direction to give to actors and i think it's you know it, it's obviously a, a huge skill just like film editing is an unimaginable um you know interesting and difficult skill um but that that director role i do think should be kept separate from mm -hmm. um best picture because it really is supposed to be again it isn't always because there's all kinds of politics going on there um, I'm sure, but um, it is supposed to be about the direction itself. And in that sense, I would say that, in my opinion, despite the the popularity of of, of Barbie and um, many critical accolades that I know I'm I'm not in line with, that I don't think that she executed that um, movie well because, to my mind, it was um, really messy, incoherent, didn't obey the world of its. Uh, the the rules of its own world building, um, convoluted, difficult to follow. Um, uh, the tone in my mind was discordant. Um, I don't think it entirely, you know, it did have that cake and eat it too thing uh, to it. It sort of was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, it felt very people pleasing. And, you know, and again, it clearly did people please because it had a huge box office. But to me, that doesn't um, equate with like, the artistic achievement as a director. Mm -hmm. Well, your column definitely started a conversation, uh, an important conversation, and I don't think any work of art is going to be received the same way by everyone, so clearly there's no right or wrong, and it's just an interesting, really interesting subject to take something that has such a huge cultural impact and break it down and talk about it. So I really appreciate you coming on, and hopefully you'll come back again and we'll talk about some other stuff. So happy to be here. Thanks so much, Andy. I like debating with you. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a friend in me. Callback. I love the callback. All righty, Pamela, thanks for coming on again, and uh, take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. 
and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.